Now, I've got to do one more thing before we open the Bible and talk about dating. Where are we going to turn? Where are we going to look in the Bible if we're wanting to hear God's thoughts on dating? I heard it even this past weekend. You might hear pastors say or, or your parents or someone say, oh, the Bible has nothing to say about dating or it doesn't speak about dating. That's true and it's not true. It's true in the sense that you can search the Bible from cover to cover and you won't find the word dating or uh, even the phenomenon of 21st century Western dating. Like the, and I'm using the word dating, whatever experience that conjures in your mind. Uh, you won't find that phenomenon because it's actually an invention of the last century and it's unique to Western cultures. It's spreading around the world now as Western culture gets around to different places, but uh, you won't find that in the Bible, but does that mean the Bible doesn't speak about it? No. We're, we're more intelligent readers than that. Just because the Bible doesn't use the word doesn't mean it doesn't speak to it. Um, but this is a warning point. We have to appreciate that this is a little bit murkier or cloudier stuff in the Bible than the stuff we've been talking about up to this point. Some of you might have read books or heard preachers or other people tell you this is God's way of dating. And if you don't do this, you're outside of his will or you're in rebellion or something. Like if you're not doing courtship or if you're not doing chaperone dating or something. Um, or if you're not doing kind of just whatever the culture is going with, you're doing it wrong. The problem with that is those people are making the Bible speak more clearly than it actually does. So guess who's filling in the gaps? Whoever's doing the talk. It has more to do with their opinions and their preferences than it has to do with God's wisdom on that. But the other danger is just as bad. Oh, the Bible doesn't say anything about dating. Awesome. It's kind of like a, he hands you Plato and says, make of it whatever you will. So we need, to be, uh, we need to be put on our big boy and big girl pants tonight and be careful readers of this passage because we're going to have to pull it into an area that's new. Same way with how we, how we live life or be faithful in a digital age. The Bible doesn't say how to do that, but it absolutely speaks to it. But we have to be a little bit more thoughtful in how we apply those passages to these, to these places. And so why don't you um, stand up? We'll read Proverbs 9. This is from the Old Testament. And this is... This is the Bible perhaps telling us not what to think about dating, but how to think about it. So it's ans answering the question, how should we go about dating? And its answer is wisely. Let's read what it has to say. Proverbs 9. Wisdom has built her house. She has set up its seven pillars. She has prepared her meat, mixed her wine. She has also set her table. She has sent out her servants and she calls from the highest point of the city. Let all who are simple come to my house. To those who have no sense, she says, or those who are senseless or ignorant, come eat my food and drink the wine that I've mixed. Leave your simpleton ways and you will live. Walk in the way of insight. Whoever corrects a mocker invites insults, but whoever rebukes, and whoever rebukes the wicked incurs abuse. Don't rebuke mockers or they'll hate you, but rebuke the wise and they'll love you for it. Instruct the wise and they'll be wiser still. Teach the righteous and they will add to their learning. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. For through wisdom your days will be many and your years will be added to your life. If you are wise, your wisdom will reward you. 
But if you're a mocker, you alone will suffer. Now they go back to kind of the metaphor they were painting before. Folly, on the other hand, unlike wisdom, she is an unruly woman. She's simple. She knows nothing. She sits at the door of her house and on a seat at the highest point of the city, calling out to those who pass by, who go straight on their way. She says, notice the similarity to what I read earlier. Let all who are simple come to my house. To those who have no sense, she says, stolen water is sweet. Food eaten in secret is delicious. But little do these people know that the dead are there, that her guests are deep in the realm of the dead. Let's pray together. Uh, Lord Jesus, uh, you are the wisdom of God. And you say that if anybody lacks wisdom, if anybody is dumb or confused or doesn't know what to do, let him ask the Lord who gives generously and without finding fault, without finding excuses not to give generously. So we are honest with you that we are confused. We, I, don't know what we're doing in our relationships. And we need your help. Do what you promised to do tonight. Give wisdom generously. Give us yourself, we pray. Um, Particularly with some of the things here that are hard to hear, we pray that you would soften the blow with grace and your mercy. We ask this in your name. Amen. Thanks. You can have a seat. So uh, my wife, Anna, and I, we have a lot, a lot of nieces and nephews, and we get to see them twice a year, sometime in the summer, sometime at the holidays when we go back home and visit. And inevitably, when we're in a house full of these little rugrats, they're like from three to eight or nine, um, you'll overhear one of them say, let's play house, or let's play moms and dads, as they call it. And uh, it's funny to listen to what happens after that, because one of the older girls or guys, they'll kind of take the responsibility of assigning roles. Like, I'm the mommy, you're the daddy, you're the two little babies, and you're the little brother. And then they, they kind of conjure up some scenario or, or scene that they're going to live out or act out. Like, I'm going to be the mommy, and I'm making dinner, and daddy's barbecuing something out there, and the babies are whatever, like fighting with each other. And then go. They start playing it out. It's cute to watch them do that. It's funny to watch them do that. Sometimes it gets a little dangerous, though, because kids have a hard time telling the difference between pretend world and real world, right? And so uh, sometimes you'll have one of these little girls, like she's the mommy, she's cooking dinner, and so she goes to the real oven and turns on the gas for the fire, and she's cooking dinner, and one of the adults has to come into the room and be like, My daughter, my lovely daughter. I'm a real mommy, and only real mommies can turn the gas on to the oven. You're a pretend mommy, so you need to use your play oven. But when when kids can't discern play from real life, uh, dangerous things can happen. Or funny things. When I was a kid, uh, the stakes were a little bit higher. I didn't play house. I played policeman. And um, one Christmas, I, I... Man, I was probably older than I want to admit, but let's say before I was a teenager, my mom, definitely before I was a teenager, my mom made me a little policeman's outfit. Oh, gosh. Uh, And it had a badge sewn on it and numbers, and um, I had a little holster and a a toy gun, and 
a ticket pad, and I had white gloves for directing traffic. And uh, I did what any little kid with white gloves would do. I directed traffic. So uh, I went out to the intersection in front of our house um, and was directing traffic because I was a police officer. And uh, uh, Mr. Ellison um, was kind enough to call my parents and say, "Um, your son just wrote me a ticket for running a stop sign. Uh, And he's standing in the middle of the road. You might want to go get him. So I walk back into the house shamed and... uh, and uh, I sit down with my parents, and they have to explain to me, Ben, only real policemen get to stand in the street and direct traffic and write tickets. Um, it's really dangerous for you to be out in the intersection, like telling grown-ups to stop and then this guy to come. Um, and so for me as well, not being able to tell the difference of pretend in real life, though it's funny, was also dangerous. Here's why I share those two stories. I, I don't think it's just kids who have trouble telling the difference between pretend and real life or make-believe and the real world. Uh, I think it's us too. And when I look back, next week, um, after letting Anna proofread my sermon, uh, we want to share more of our story with you and particularly our failures in dating, um, our foolishness in dating, and a few places where, by God's grace, we got it right. Uh, But when I think back to our dating relationship of two and a half years, and when I think about all the stories that I hear from you guys and observations I make of your dating relationships, I think that modern dating is often little more than playing marriage or pretending like we're moms and dads or husbands and wives. And the older you get, the higher the stakes if you can't tell the difference in pretend world and real world. Uh, or if you don't know which world you're living in, make-believe or real. Um, more damage is on the line. People's hearts are on the line. Our past, our shame, our future is all on the line when grown-up men and women can't tell the difference between um, marriage and something that looks a lot like marriage. Um, and so that's, that's, my, that's my suggestion. What, what could it look like to play marriage Well, we could pretend like dating is marriage when we expect or demand um, the emotional investment or emotional stability that only a marriage could expect. Only a marriage can bear that kind of weight of the emotional intensity. But in dating, when we begin to expect from each other or demand from each other the level of emotional investment that only a husband or a wife should be able to expect from each other, we play like we're married or when we express physical and sexual affection in marital ways um, and all of the baggage that comes with that. It's like some of you, a lot of you, many of us are the proof that what I'm suggesting is actually true. Um, It's not like you're the little policeman who walks in the intersection and is directing traffic. I could have gotten hit by a car, but we are people who kind of walk into some really big intersections and we do get hit by reality head on and it hurts and it cuts and it confuses. Um, And it it, it keeps us in the fog even more about how in the world am I supposed to have a a functional, healthy relationship with uh, uh, someone of the opposite sex in a dating relationship or someone I'm interested in. So some of you guys, some of you girls and I have been hit hard by reality and it wakes us up. Just like that little kid playing with the stove or just like 
Mr. Ellison calling my dad, it snapped me out of my pretend world uh, before I got hurt. Some of you have gotten hurt. Some of you, this even tonight could be the snap back to reality before you get hurt. Um, But I really only have one point tonight, and it's this. Uh, Wise dating can tell pretend world from the real world. Wise dating, Proverbs kind of dating, this passage you just read, what's distinct about it is it can tell play from real life. It's a pretty simple point, right? Let's, uh, let's look at it from a few different angles. And, and let's do that by looking back at the Proverbs, the, the, the chapter 9 that we just read. The whole chapter, and actually the whole book of Proverbs up until this point, is, is built in such a way that it's comparing these two things, wisdom and folly, which means foolishness. Um, and he's personifying because wisdom and foolishness are abstractions, right? It's kind of like, do you want to have a philosophy lecture or do you want to talk about two ladies and where they built their houses and what they're doing? So this, the, Proverbs is written to a bunch of school-age boys. That's who the audience is originally. And uh, obviously, uh, what are 13-year-old boys going to be more uh, engaged by and what are they going to remember better? A philosophy lecture on wisdom or, hey, get a load of this lady and then get a load of this lady. And here's what they're doing. So here's what they are doing. He's comparing and contrasting. Uh, Wisdom has built her house. He pushes on in verse 3. Says, she has sent out her servants and she calls from the highest point of the city. Let all who are simpletons or all who don't know what they're doing in life. Can you raise your hand? Is that all of us? Do you know what you're doing in life? Let's be honest. Uh, We don't know what we're doing anywhere uh, if we're honest. To all of those who are simple... Come to my house. To those who have no sense, she says, come and eat my food. She invites them into dinner. So this isn't this kind of impersonal, come and I will teach you. This is a very personal, come and dine with me. Okay, we'll come back to that in a second. So that's what wisdom is doing. Folly is doing this. Folly is an unruly woman. She is simple and she knows nothing. Wow, we have a good start here. She sits at the door of her house and on, and on a seat at the highest point of the city. Start to notice how eerily similar wisdom and foolishness are. She also, at the highest point of the city, calls out to those who pass by, who go straight on their way. Let all who are simple come to my house. To those who have no sense, she says, stolen water is sweet. Food eaten in secret is delicious. But these people she's calling out to, which is you and me, just like wisdom... We don't know that the walking dead are all up in her house. (laughs) She's also inviting us in for dinner. And what we don't know is there are zombies inside that will eat you. Um, Or what what he says here, that her guests are deep in the realm of the dead. And I say that because uh, when these little kids heard this the first time, they'd be thinking of the same thing. They'd be giggling and then hair on the back of their head standing up. Whoa. Um, so this is, the, this is the kind of comparison and contrast of wisdom and folly. And I'm asking the question, what does wise dating look like? What does foolish dating look like? Um, back, to the, back to the passage real quick. Uh, wisdom is unlike the people she's calling to herself. Wisdom knows what's going on. The lights are turned on for wisdom. And so when she calls the simpletons or the confused people like us to her house to have dinner, guess what? You have a high expectation. You're going to leave there um, with a much clearer picture than you came in with, and you're going to know more than you did when you got there, and you're going to understand. 
The dots are going to connect. Things are going to make sense. Folly, on the other hand, is an unruly woman. She knows nothing. So she is exactly like the people she's calling to herself to give advice to. So folly is the worst counselor on the planet because folly is in the same place the stuck person is who's coming to the counselor. So if a person comes in the office and says, I'm so confused, I don't know what to do, their counselor says, I'm so confused, I don't know what to do, but let me tell you what to do anyway. That's a picture of folly. Um, Both of them, this is scary. Both of them are in the same place saying the same thing to the same people and offering the same thing. So imagine you're walking down Imol. It's class change. There's hundreds of people around. What this passage is saying is wisdom has set up her table on the left side of the Imol. Folly has set up her table on the left side of Imol. They both have the same banner. They both are saying the exact same thing to the passersby. They both look the same. They're both talking about the same stuff. Which table do you talk to? I mean, they look the same. There's very subtle differences here. And this is why I think this is not only a little bit scary, but this is why it's not just kids who have a hard time telling pretend world from real world. Folly would be kind of living in a pretend world. That's why he says down here, folly says, hey, stolen water is sweet. Food eaten in secret is delicious. What he's basically saying is this alternate, this fantasy life where you can get away with taking other people's stuff This fantasy life where you can kind of like have your own dark little existence that nobody knows about, that's life. That's pretend world. If you persist living in a fantasy world, your life, because you're not living in the real world, guess what? Your life drains out. It's only when you live in the real world that you find life. Wisdom is very different, he says there. So it's scary because adults have the same trouble kids do telling apart fake from real The last similarity is this. Wisdom and folly are both pursuing you. They're not, I mean, where that metaphor breaks down, I just said, is they're both sitting at the table waiting for you. But the passage says they're calling out to you. The personification of wisdom and folly, they're not waiting around for you to seek them. They're preaching to you every waking minute of your day. Without your permission... (laughs) Without ever asking your opinion, there's these two radio stations on, wisdom and foolishness. Here's the point. One sounds more familiar to you than the other because you tune into it more frequently. Uh, And eventually, you lose interest in the other station. I'd suggest to you our lives and the trails of our relationships suggest that we are very loyal to folly. And we let foolishness counsel us in our relationships. And where we see it most painfully, because most is on the line, is in romantic relationships. Because all of your emotions are there. All of them. And they're all turned up. Um, and so that's, that's kind of how we see this dating stuff pop up uh, in this passage. And my question to you is, which is more familiar? Wisdom or folly when you begin to think about uh, dating So wisdom's the real deal. Folly is a pretender. And the people who listen to her become pretenders as well. So let's break the metaphor down. What what does it mean to pretend 
or to play marriage or to kind of what's the what's this dating game um, that I kind of titled this talk? What's the dating game? Um, and how are we so enticed by it? What are the things that are so close to the real thing that they trip us up and we can't tell the difference? Well, we're going to keep it simple. There's just one big thing um, that we need to dismantle. We need to listen to wisdom so that we can dismantle this big pretend fake reality that all of us believe, myself included, Uh, maybe until recently because I had to prepare for this. Uh, It's this. Dating isn't a legitimate category for male-female relationships in the eyes of the one who made males and females. We'll nuance this, but hear it first. Dating, um, not so much the activity of going and eating coffee with someone, but dating as a status, like as an identity, we are boyfriend, girlfriend, isn't legitimate in the eyes of God. Here's why. The three categories God does envision for the males and females that he made are these, and they're very obvious. They're familial. Uh, Girls, you're in a relationship with your dads to some extent. Guys, you're in a relationship with your mom to some extent. And with that category of relationship comes unique responsibilities and also unique liberties. So there's unique freedoms and also unique costs to that relationship, right? You're to obey your parents. You're to take care of your parents, right? The second big category that God has for male-female relationships is marriage. And that's the most obvious one. That obviously comes with unique responsibilities and unique freedoms that are unique to that relationship. Um, You better hope I relate to Anna differently than my mom or my sister. Um, Marriages get into a really bad place when that stops happening and you start treating your spouse like your parents or your kids. Um, but also with me and Anna's relationship, because it's covenantal, we've made promises before God and others. We are married. I wear jewelry. She does too. Is that there are unique responsibilities. I'm to love her, cherish her, never, ever, 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 ever forsake her. And there's also unique liberties and freedoms. The biggest of which isn't just a freedom. It's a command. The Bible isn't okay. Just saying husbands and wives get to have sex. The Bible says husbands and wives better be having sex. Paul says Do not withhold yourself from your spouse unless it's for a particular reason, for fasting or for prayer. So second category of relationship comes with its own kind of freedoms and responsibilities. So the third category we talked about the past two weeks, it's neighbors or friendship, whatever you want to call it. And guess what? Just we spent two weeks talking about the unique responsibilities and liberties, joys of neighbors and friendships, right? The intimacy that comes in those covenantal friendships, the commitment, the the mutual sense of I'm for you uh, is unique to the neighbor relationship. What's noticeably absent from the list, cover to cover in the Bible, is dating. Even when you have that rare moment where you have a a romantic thing going on in scripture of like Jacob and uh, and Rachel or um, Ruth and Boaz or something like that. You still don't see that being a category where God starts saying, this is a thing. And here's these responsibilities that are unique to dating. And here's these uh, liberties that are unique to dating. Before I push any further, let me make sure you don't hear something I'm not saying. I'm not saying that dating the activity is a bad thing. 
Like wanting to get to know a guy or a girl that you think is cute and you're interested in is a good thing. Go, pursuing them, going on a date, getting to know them, learning what they love, learning what they hate, enjoying their personality, um, doing activities together, meeting their family, considering marrying them, talking to people about them, all good stuff, all great stuff. We'll talk about it next week. What I'm talking about is when we make dating a category, a status, an identity, as if something changes on a Monday if you're just friends and on a Tuesday you're boyfriend and a girlfriend, the question comes up, but what has really changed? We said yesterday we weren't exclusive and today we are, but you were exclusive before too, as you kind of were interested in each other, texting each other all the time, creeping on each other. You weren't creeping on a bunch of people, you were creeping just on them. So exclusivity was there before and after. Um, We'll talk in a second about commitment and some other aspects of that. But let me just say that. I'm not bashing dating as a verb. I'm bashing bashing dating as a noun, dating as a thing, as a category. Here's a a quote from some guys who wrote a book called Sex, Dating, and Marriage, that's appropriately named, that might clarify this a little bit more. Unlike previous generations which understood the term dating to refer to what a guy and a girl did, i.e. going out on a date, The modern concept of dating often refers to something they are, i.e., we are boyfriend and girlfriend. And in doing so, in creating and inventing this new category of relationship that God doesn't conceive of, and in doing so, we created, apart from Scripture, our own category of male and female relationships. And so we're forced to also invent our own purity guidelines, how far is too far stuff, for this newly created category. But inventing our own moral guidelines has never gone well for humanity. I love that line. Inventing our own moral guidelines. When when we are called to govern ourselves and make up rules for ourselves, that rarely goes well. Uh, We usually leave some loopholes for what we really want to do. So I hope that's clear what, what we are saying and what we're not saying. Which brings us back to the original question. If dating isn't its own thing... As dating as a status isn't some fourth category of this relationship that God envisions, then which category does it fit in? If dating's a shoe, which foot does it fit on? This is the Cinderella scene. Let's try it on each foot. Does it fit best on the family foot? Gee, I sure hope not. That'd be super weird. Um, let's just push on past that and not even say why. Uh, does it fit on the marriage foot? Well, this is our problem, right? All of us are like walking around in shoes that are this, like marriage is a, a set of big feet and the dating shoe is about this big. And so we're kind of tiptoeing around in great pain, trying to make it fit, but it won't. So which shoe is left? The friendship shoe. Uh, the, the neighbor category is where uh, dating fits in the eyes and the conception of the Bible or of God, which means... Last week's sermon or message on friendship, on close, intimate friendships, has much more to do with dating than you thought it did at the time. Um, That the point of friendship isn't friendship, that dating is about something. It's finding another person that is going in the same direction you are. That That the glue that holds friendships together and Friendships who are going, friends who are going out on dates and, and getting clarity about whether they want to marry each other. The glue that holds that together is a covenantal sense of I'm with you, I'm for you. Um, and that the point of relationship, the point of dating in the eyes of the Bible, as you could say, is to show forth Christ to the other just as much as it is in friendship. 
So how about we say this is enough abstract talk for now? Let's kind of bring it down and say, well, what difference does this actually make? Because um, maybe the categories in your brain are shifting around. Like there's some trauma going on in your brain. You're like, oh, no, the fourth category is gone. What am I going to fill it with? Um, but what, why is this such a big deal? And is it something more than just an abstraction? <clears throat> Here's why the conversation we've been having isn't abstract at all. Your behavior in your relationships... It's true for any kind of relationship. Your behavior in relationships flows out of what kind of relationship you think you're in, right? This is why the conversation, hey, what are we? Like, I knew we were friends, but like with the conversations we've been having lately, like, am I, are we like dating now or what's going on? That's why that conversation is so important. What the person, what the guy or the girl is really asking is how am I supposed to act? I don't know how to act towards you anymore. Because I can't tell if we're friends or if we're dating. And so behavior flows out of what kind of friendship, what kind of relationship you think you're in. I've heard it said before, before you can know how you're supposed to act, you have to know what story you're in. Before you can know how you're supposed to behave, you have to know what story you're in. Before you know how you're supposed to behave in a relationship, you have to know what kind of relationship you're in. Which is why when we mistakenly think or play like we're married, is it any surprise that our behavior starts acting like marriage behavior? We start doing married things. We start having married expectations. And we have marriage heartbreak if and when the relationship breaks. It's why a breakup can feel as bad as a divorce when we play marriage. Or the thought, the fear of a breakup is just as devastating as a wife fearing a divorce. That's what's on the line. That's how practical and on the ground this kind of stuff is. So really quickly, and I say this uh, as, as one who I will share stories with you next week. I've got plenty of stories of failure, confusion, and desperation in dating. Um, if you're dating right now, and you're struggling with the question, how far is too far? Physical stuff has kind of become huge, and you're like, where's the line? If you're asking the question, my suggestion to you is you're playing marriage. We'll talk in a second about why that is, what's appropriate to a, a, a relationship if, if it fits under the friendship category. But if you're asking the question, how far is too far, I think you're already... It indicates you're already neck deep and playing like you're married. Because um, you're asking the question, how sexual, how physical, um, how covenantal in terms of having, having sex with each other or doing sexual things with each other, how close can we get to that without getting in trouble? I think you're, you're already way over the line of, uh, of playing marriage. Other things that come up, if you're upset that your boyfriend or your girlfriend talks with other girls or other guys, you have... You have marriage expectations of exclusivity. So you get super jealous, super possessive, super angry when you go to a party and you see boyfriend talking with other girl or looking at other girl or reversed. You have, you have expectations of that relationship as if you stood on an altar before God and the entire world and said, this person only I give myself to. But in a dating relationship, you've never said any of that. Um, maybe in little flash moments of intimacy, Somebody said that to the other. I'll never leave you, babe. If you do this for me, I'll do this for you. Um, 
those don't hold any water. I mean, we know it. And they're not public. They're kind of done in secret. Maybe another thing. You manipulate the other person, guys and girls, uh, to lock down the commitment of the other person. You sense that they're starting to get cold feet or they're starting to want to kind of check out other people or find the exit. And so you begin to manipulate. You say things, you do things um, to keep them locked down. Um, uh, We're playing marriage. The last thing I thought of is uh, you expect all of your boyfriend or girlfriend's free time to belong to you. The expectation is that of what a husband and a wife have to each other. But friend, I don't... Y'all are my friends. I don't expect every waking hour of your free time to be spent thinking about me, calling me, spending time with me, (laughs) writing me letters. So are your expectations of your boyfriend or girlfriend marriage expectations of time or are they friendship expectations of time? Are your ideas about exclusivity and commitment marriage expectations or dating expectations? Are your physical, is your physical expectations marriage or or, or dating or, or friendship, sorry? And so if, we, if any of these things resonate with us, we know that we've been listening to Lady Folly. She is our relationship guru. So how do we begin to change? The first thing, I told you there's only one big thing here. The, the, how do we begin to change? Well, the first baby steps is really just doing this. It's going back to the drawing board and saying, what kind of relationship are we actually in? This goes for those of you who are in a relationship, but... For those of you who want to be in a relationship or you were in the past or you think you will be in the future, which is most of you, um, what kind of relationship are you in or do you want to be in? The behaviors, the expectations, and the expressions of affection that best fit boyfriends and girlfriends are the same behaviors, expectations, and expressions of affection that fit your friendships. I know this is radical stuff. I know this is unpleasant stuff to hear. Um, we can talk about it, but it's at least got to get out there. Date, uh, who you are uh, dating should look more similar to a friendship than a marriage. I'm not making this up. Paul says it in 1 Timothy 5. He tells us, he says to treat the older men as you would a father, treat the younger men as brothers, treat the older women as mothers, and treat the younger women as sisters, all in purity. So Paul is saying God's expectation for how you treat the guy or the girl you're interested in or in a relationship with or whatever um, is as a sister or as a brother. He gets familial there, but he's still talking in terms of uh, how we relate to friendships. So contrary to popular opinion, dating as a status or an identity isn't nearly as committed as we think. If you're in a relationship, you are free at any second to leave without any justification for any reason at any time. You can leave and you don't have to go to a courthouse and get them to approve it, nor do you have to talk to a pastor or a counselor. You can leave and you're free to leave because it is not a committed relationship, even though it pretends to be a committed relationship. Dating as a status and an identity is not nearly as exclusive as it sounds if indeed it falls into the category of friendship. And it's not at all as sexually free as it pretends to be. Um, it's not as, it's not nearly as, as sexually permissive as it pretends to be. And we bear the scars that testify to the truth of that. So this might sound like not so great news to those of you who are courageous enough to come tonight, who are in relationships, or especially if you brought your boyfriend or girlfriend. Um, 
Let me say something really quickly, though, to those of you who aren't in a relationship and haven't even thought about it. Are the reasons you're so intimidated by dating, calling a girl up and saying, can we get coffee? Or calling a guy, or whatever you want to do to the guy, like making it known to him that you're interested. Anna had to do that for four years with me. I'm a slow learner. Um, giving him a, throwing him a bone, saying, hey, let's make it obvious. This guy probably wouldn't notice it otherwise. Um, is what's keeping you from dating that you also see dating as one step beneath marriage. And so it overwhelms you before you ever even call someone to go hang out for this innocent little conversation. You're asking the question, can I marry this person or not? Like put the gun down, back away. Like you don't have to, you don't have to know if you're going to marry a person just to go have a meal with them. Or maybe the expectations, you're like, they're going to have crushing expectations of me or what's going to happen physically or what's going to happen here or there. You also, do you see what you're doing? The reason you're not dating is because you believe the same thing all the people who are dating believe. That dating is just like marriage. You're, you're playing marriage too and it freaks you out and so you run away from it. That was me for most of my life until Anna asked me to marry her. Just kidding. <laughs> I want to make this last point, and we need to land this plane and finish up. Dating, even as an activity, is inherently insecure. It is insecure, which means it's unsecured. There's nothing tying it down. There's nothing gluing it together. You can leave it any time. It can end at any time. When we try to secure it is when we get into trouble. Have you ever had sex with someone to try to secure the relationship? Because you're afraid he or she would run if you didn't start. Have you hooked up with someone to prove to them or just to prove that you're a cool, hey, I'm a cool girl, I'm a cool guy, I'm the kind of person you want to be with? Have you tried to lock it down through that? Have you said I love you to a ton of people in the past to try to lock down an insecure relationship, to try to make it safe again? That's what it, we get into trouble when we try to secure an inherently insecure thing. Um, if you want security, there's two options. Um, and I'm not being flippant here. There's get married or there's break up. That's where safety is. Um, we'll talk in the future weeks about what it looks like to begin to ask the question, is this someone I could marry? Is this a relationship that could, that could survive that? Um, but when you try to make an insecure relationship secure by doing these different things, we get into big trouble and we start to get cut. I want to end with Jesus because as I said at the end of every week, the Bible is not about dating techniques or friendship techniques or relationship principles. The Bible is not an encyclopedia. The Bible is a story of what God has done through Jesus to rescue you from yourself and what response he calls forth from us. And so here is how... You say, where is Jesus in Proverbs? This is the Old Testament. Where is he in here? Colossians says Jesus is the wisdom of God. Wisdom is not abstract. Wisdom is a person. That's why when you lack wisdom, you can pray to Jesus and he will give you wisdom. He is wisdom. And so if Jesus is a person, if Jesus is wisdom, and he shares that with you, we have hope. Um, this is what a, a, some professors of mine at seminary said. The wisdom who beckons us in Proverbs 9, lady wisdom, the wisdom who beckons us, who pursues us, is none other than Jesus Christ. 
while the folly that attempts to seduce us is any created thing that we put in place of the creator. Jesus is the wisdom of God. He both is the one who is wise on your behalf, and he is also the fool. The cross is where you see those two things come together. The cross is a picture of a wise man dying the death of a fool. Mocked, dismissed, ridiculed, spat upon, laughed at. Proverbs 9 says, if you listen to lady folly, you will die. And it says, if you walk in wisdom, you will live. Why did Jesus die and why do his people live? He shares with you his record, his resume as a wise man. And he takes upon himself your record and your resume as a fool. And he dies the death, Proverbs 9 predicts, so that you live the life, Proverbs 9 predicts. Jesus became a fool that you and I might be wise and become wise, even in our dating. Let's pray, and we'll continue the conversation next week. Lord Jesus, it's been a long conversation. It's hard conversation because perhaps it's new ideas or ideas that we just don't like. But even in this passage, you say that the fool laughs at insight, but the wise man is always willing to be corrected. So I pray for all of us that you would give us grace that we might be willing to be corrected by your word, that we might not push back and dig in our heels and insist upon the ways that we've invented and pretended. Would you show us the way? Would you remind us that you are our wisdom? and that you took upon yourself our foolishness. We thank you, and we ask this in your name. Amen. Amen. Will you guys stand with me?